I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. My name is Emma Race and it's a pleasure to be here today with some groundbreakers and history makers. I'm here with my football loving lady friends. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hello, it is Lucy Race here. And hello, it's Kate Sear. It's not quite a quorum. No, not yet. Not yet. I think Nicole and Alicia will join us throughout the day. Uh, We have been facing the global pandemic blues down here in Victoria, so we're socially distancing to the max. So Nicole and Alicia might pop in throughout today's show. How are you, ladies? Are you good? Yes, I'm good. Yeah, I'm great. We had a Zoom meeting with uh, a meeting a catch up, I should say. It was more I took like minutes <laughs> with a bunch of Sanctum listeners on Monday night, and it was absolutely delightful. We had a specific question from Rose, who you'll remember, Lucy Lucy Lace. That's my name, Lucy Race. Rose was uh, an eleven-year-old guest who was there and having a chat to us, and she wanted to know what was going on with your possum. Oh, the possum! Possum update: the possum <laughs> has left the building. Oh, that's Is, nice. it's safe and sound. Safe and sound, yes. We installed one of those exit-only doors, which is funny because really it's single use, isn't it? Mm. Well, you say quite a bit of um, bit of building for just one use. (laughs) Bit of effort. When you say it's the outdoor only, I hear she walked in in through the the outdoor outdoor. Well, if the possum tries to do that, then we'll be in trouble again. But my husband did fix the (laughs) hole, which was funny because he's not Bob the Builder. Now we're deciding whether we can live with just a funny patch on the wall or whether we need to start painting, which will start a whole new job. Oh, when you start well, we've painting got time. Quite, yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> we do have a really special guest on the show today. I'm not going to pretend it's a surprise because the episode's probably called Julia Gillard with the Outer Sanctum. <laughs> but Julia Gillard's coming up on the pod today and uh, I've worn my special, my best face mask for the occasion. In order to give as much time as we can to the interview, I really just want to power on with some footy chat. Did you guys have some highlights from the weekend, Lucy? Yeah, there were some really good games. There was also... As we're coming to expect, some not so good games. <laughs> but the Port Carlton game was quite extraordinary, don't you think? Towards the boundary line, picked up by Mays of Port, kicks to the lead and the mark of Gray in the pocket. Gray takes the mark and the siren will probably sound before he kicks it. He needs pocket. to kick the goal to win the game. He's 40 metres out in the right forward pocket. Carlton lead by three points. The toughest of angles for Robbie Gray to try and win it at the death for Port. On the approach, strikes it with his right boot. Kicked it. He's kicked it. Oh, he has kicked it! (laughs) Robbie Gray from the boundary and the power take 
the victory. How was life in your household, Em? Life was very stressful. Robbie Gray had so many bites of the cherry and didn't quite get it. Eat it. And t- <laughs> didn't quite eat it until after the siren. He likes to eat the cherry after the siren. It was just, it was just so heartbreaking for Blues fans. Mm. But Port's fantastic, aren't they? I they mean, they're are. having a cracking season. They are. They're playing really well. And I mean, I have said this already during the year, but I just want to repeat it again, which is that I'm so thrilled that teams that we might not have expected to be doing as well as they are are doing really well. Brisbane is second on the ladder. They were they obviously went pretty well last year, but Port's having a blinder of a season and um, it's such great fun to watch, I think. And your Gold Coast Suns. Oh, my Gold Coast Suns. You know, I did declare on the weekend to my partner that I think the Gold Coast are sort of my second favourite team. They've they, I, they just have a piece of my heart. I I'm can't pleased resist to them. hear that after Hawthorne's effort that they're not your first favourite team, <laughs> to be quite honest. Look, it's, it's, it's still in the balance. It's in contention. Come back to me next week. <laughs> well, just on Hawthorne, I'll tell you what my other highlight of the weekend was, and that was Max Gorn. <laughs> <laughs> Who played for Who played, played in a way. against us. He was so impressive. I think Titus O'Reilly summed it up best when he tweeted, Hawthorne fans probably questioning the kick it to Max Gorn strategy. <laughs> Never has a tweet rung truer in my ears. I actually thought that Max had cloned himself because he managed to be all over the ground rucking and then took a whole heap of marks in defence. He was pretty incredible. Probably only maybe just topped by Kristen Petrarca who took 10 perfect Votes from the ten perfect vote. He Nadia Comaneci. He Nadia Comaneci <laughs> from the coaches association. So he's like. I feel like he could have been played Clark Kent in Smallville. How many Is people do you of... think it, you need to tackle him? Oh, oh gosh, ten. Yeah, ten, twenty. I don't know. Thirty. Couple of ropes. Get some people off the off the bench. <laughs> some of the amazing. cardboard cutouts. <laughs> I'm seeing Gulliver's Travels. I was what? too. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Katie? What were your highlights? Well, you mentioned him. Um, we have a very special guest today, in Julia Gillard, who was, of course, the first female Prime Minister. And so in the theme of firsts, I wanted to celebrate a number of debutantes who played on the weekend. I've really enjoyed uh, watching some of them go around. Obviously, we were all wowed by Isaac Rankin last week in particular, but I just want to give a a few shout outs. First of all, to Michael Fredericks, who debuted for the Dockers and kicked a a great goal. And he looks really promising to me. Also, Noongar man Elijah Taylor, he debuted for Sydney and he wore the number 37 jumper, which is the first time that it has been worn since Adam Goods retired. It hasn't been used since then, and I thought that was a really beautiful touch. Mm. But the person who stole my heart and looked like he was having a, the time of his life it was Cody Waitman, who debuted for the Western Bulldogs. Now, he is a man after my own heart because I read this that he said 12 months ago. I'm a bit superstitious, he said. Ever since I was super young, when I've had a packet of chips and got the wish chips, which are the ones that are folded over each other, I've always wished to be a footballer. Oh. I can't remember how long I've been oh. doing that. It is the one thing. I've aspired to. Potato chips and superstitions <laughs> all together in one. It's like my dream, like Venn diagram circle it's situation. It's a wish chip. It's a wish chip. And so he got his wish on the weekend, and you could tell he was absolutely thrilled to be out there. Um, he had a great game. He t- he had nine disposals, plenty of effort and energy. But most of all, he kicked a stunning goal from over on the on the boundary, even a tighter angle than Robbie Gray, I think. And it was just wonderful to watch. What was also beautiful about it was that Mitch Wallace presented him with his jumper. They had lived together uh, when he was younger, so I thought that was that was gorgeous. In the spirit of jumper presentations, I love when, you know, like an old player passes on a jumper to a new player or something like that. As our listeners will know, I'm a doctor. 
And in recent weeks, it's become clear that Lucy is also a doctor now. She's a she's a she's a Google doctor. And so I know this is a this is an audio medium, not a visual medium, but a medium. But I do have a presentation I wanted to make to Dr. Lucy Race to um, acknowledge the fact that she's now joined the the club. And this is a little gift I have from you, Lucy. <laughs> It's a T-shirt that that says, says, keep calm, I'm a doctor. So, Dr. Lucy Race, congratulations and welcome to the club. Thanks. (laughs) This is a really proud moment for our mum who only ever wanted to have a doctor in the family and now it's happened. And you are are number one with a bullet, Lucy Race. I'm so thrilled. I actually was going to start this podcast even before the music played by just saying, disclaimer, I'm not a real doctor. (laughs) Because the funny thing about me being a doctor is that I do get things wrong (laughs) and I did get something wrong last week. The medial ligament is not on the outside. That's a lateral ligament. But I'm starting to think that... Lateral, schmateral, whatever. (laughs) Whatever. My medical content is actually a game for you all to play along with at home. And it is... Exactly. Do you remember that game? Which of these facts doesn't belong here? (laughs) You put the grey in Grey's Anatomy. Do you want to know what my highlight was? Oh, yes, please. I know you're getting, I mean, becoming a medical podcast. Um, (laughs) Monday night footy. It felt so natural, which is good because we're about to have footy every afternoon slash morning night of the the week. Um, But I am so ready for that because, you know, Monday night footy just, it felt... It felt very normal to me, and I'm shocked by that. It went so well, in fact, that um, you know how in the you know how in the states they play a game after Thanksgiving. Mm. You know how they do that. Mm. Well, I reckon Gil is soon going to introduce Thanksgiving to Australia, just so that we can have a game <laughs> after it. I feel like that's what's going to happen. Idea. But so the the fixture came out in the last couple of hours. There is a game that Hawthorne play the Blues. It's a Thursday night. And Lucy, what time is that game? It's going to be in Perth. it's going to kick off in Perth at 3:40 p.m. <laughs> that is a kick after school. That you is know a what? play date. Well, in this tradition of coming up with names for all of these mm. time slots, I think our own Felicity Race came up with the best one. Yes. And she called it detention. <laughs> It sounds... Because when I saw the fixture last night, I think I messaged you all and said, Hawthorne played so badly they've invented a new time slot and it's three o'clock on a Thursday It's where you bury the games that are just going to be rotten as an egg. No, actually, I think Carlton will play really well in that game. I'm sure they will. Well, as you said, Em, you weren't kidding when you said there was going to be footy day, day, night, you know, afternoon, morning for the next little while. So there's going to be 20 straight days of footy. It's biblical. I would would love our listeners to, to text in, tweet in, Facebook, Facebook, Instagram us and let us know what they would call the other days of the week, other slots, mm. Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights. Thursday we, afternoon. <laughs> Wednesday morning, maybe we could have a Wednesday morning. Oh, Sunday, midweek Sunday morning. <laughs> midweek. <laughs> That's right. It's 20 days, 20 nights of football. I think it's the biblical 20 games for 2020. The other thing that's interesting is I think this might be the last weekend that we see football played in New South Wales. So all of those games that are fixtured, those 33 games in 20 days, will be in other states, including Tasmania. Is that true? 
I didn't know that. Yes. I didn't realise that I'm either. catching up on actual news. <laughs> but is it true? Because it comes it's from true you. News. It's true news. It's true news. I don't trust anything she says anymore. need to Google that one. Just keep it <laughs> yeah, on your you. toes. Um, now, I don't know if we've got a commentary watch, but we do have a highlight. Last week, Kate, you brought mm. a new segment mm. to the table, which was about rhymes. Yeah, rhyme watch. Well, I want to thank a, a few of our listeners who contacted us and noted that there have been some other rhymes during the week. I said it might just be a one-off segment. Bruce talked about a rope-a-dope during the week. Which was which was nice, and also in one of the games in the Geelong game, Brian Taylor did say you can't fiddle diddle around with it. <laughs> and I want to thank our listener Isabel, who who really made us laugh by tweeting in and, and calling the segment "Rhyming Brian" instead of "Roaming Brian." Can and it not be "Rhyming Brian"? <laughs> I think it should be "Rhyming Brian." Rhyme, so, but Isabel nailed that. She's nailed it. It was just it killed me. It was so great. So thank you, <laughs> Isabel. And we might come back to the "Rhyming Brian" segment throughout the. Yeah. Well, while you sit in the corner and think about that, I do have some non-rhyming commentary watch. I did try to get a few more details around it as opposed to last week. <laughs> One was James Brayshaw said about Curtis Taylor, he's got some nice hands attached to him. <laughs> <laughs> Kate spits her coffee. <laughs> Are they his hands? I hope so. Hmm. Dr. Lucy could go into <laughs> some of the other options there. Another one that I did like was about Frost, who's Sam Frost? Yep. Am I right? Yeah, not Jack Frost. Sam Frost, Sam who Frost, plays for Hawthorne. You're getting tripped up because of The Bachelor. Anyway, Frost. Going. Oh, okay, also, let's Jack just say Frost. Frost is about. True. <laughs> he was kicking out of defence and someone said, we know he can be speculative by foot. Oh, yes, I saw this and I thought it was hilarious. I actually Googled the meaning of the word speculate just to, just to see whether or not it really worked. To speculate means to form a theory or conjecture about a subject without firm evidence. Mm. So Frost formed a theory or conjectured about a subject without <laughs> firm evidence with his foot. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I am too. I I'll feel like that. it works actually. I, I did go and look at the, the technical definition to see like, does it? Yeah, I think I, it works. I, I really I, quite I like liked it. it. My last one is as somebody went to the bench with a uh, with a hamstring injury, what one of the they? commentators said, my hamstring man tells me we've had 17. Yep. Hamstring. There's a sentence you don't hear very often. Oh, no. There needs to be a deep dive on who the hamstring man is. I think it's Lucy. <laughs> no, it's definitely not Lucy. Dr. Lucy. All right. Are we ready to roll up our sleeves in Malay ladies? Collingwood had a good night out on Friday. Their team included Jordan Dugowie, who was back on field after missing some footy. He'd had to break the COVID hub quarantine policy to go to the police station regarding charges of indecent assault that he's currently facing. Collingwood tweeted... Welcome back, Geordie. While on Channel 7, Bruce McAvaney called Jordan's situation a hiccup and later apologised for minimising these serious allegations. Twitter was awash with folk who found it upsetting. I was actually wowed by how many men were giving their voice to that on Twitter and there's been a couple of articles written about it in the wash-up as well. People were calling for the code and the club and the broadcaster to do better and I did find that flooding of messaging really heartening. I was really disappointed, I have to say, that the broadcaster hadn't put in more effort knowing that this was going to be a moment that's upon you you would prepare for all sorts of things that could happen in a game whether someone's you know playing their 100th or you know someone's back from injury or someone's had a tough week for whatever reason so I was really surprised and I think the thing that shocked me the most is I would like to see the broadcaster put as much effort into working out how to talk about these situations when they arise as women are expected to put in when they leave the house when they're walking to their car with their keys between their fingers 
friends when they're looking out for a mate's drink so that it doesn't get spiked, when they're making sure that they're texting people to say, I'm home safely. That is a weight that women carry, a lot of women carry in society and probably a lot of men do too. I found it disappointing and almost humiliating that more thought hadn't been put into it. And I figured that maybe things could have been different if there was a woman commentator but there was no women siren to siren to illuminate the experiences of women. Lucy, I know you took it pretty hard too. I've kind of got two takes. My first one is kind of an extension of what you were saying, Em, and I think, you know, the, the discussion has been around should he have been stood down or shouldn't he? And I think the discussion needs to be broader. If we do decide that players can continue, we should expect that the AFL clubs, media organisations do think very carefully around their messaging about it. And that means thinking about and planning social media posts, considering the words and phrases that you don't want to use and deciding on how you'll speak about the situation. In some instances, you might need to get input from experts. Broadcasting live is really hard. I really get that. I don't understand why you wouldn't prepare for what you know is already a fraught and contentious situation. Some of my suggestions would be not having a welcome back on social media. I would rather that there were no superlatives. If you're going to talk about that player, let's just keep it to the statistics. I don't want to see extra platforming on AFL social media. And to their credit, the AFL didn't do that with Dugowie. But there also needs to be a really careful monitoring around social media. And there was some pretty bad stuff. We spoke about this a few weeks ago, and I was kind of on the fence about whether I thought we should have a stand down policy or not. And I've changed my mind. I actually think we do need one now. We've mentioned that in other professions, there are times when serious charges like the ones that Dugowie is facing means that you're not able to work while you're waiting to go to court. For example, if you're an accountant or a teacher, if you're facing serious charges, you can't keep going to work. And the reasoning behind that standing down of employees is that continuing in their usual capacity presents what's kind of an unnecessary risk to the people that they come into contact with. Footballers occupy a special, they occupy a place in society's role models. They're lauded, they're often elevated. And when they continue to play and get praised in the media, and when there's no meaningful discussion about the gravity of the charges that they're facing, it sends a message to the alleged victim and to other victims broadly that we prioritise football over them. Kate, you, you've often educated us on <clears throat> what it would mean if there was a stand-down policy and then those charges are taken to court and whether or not that would impact what might be handed down by a judge. What do you think? Yeah, I've said this before. One of my concerns about it is that if a player ended up being convicted of a, of a criminal offence, part of what would happen invariably is that their lawyer would argue that they had already been punished in a sense by their employer. So if you imagine that a player missed out on an opportunity to play in a grand final or to receive a bonus or whatever under his, his uh, or her pay structure, if they lost income during the period that they were stood down, for instance, all of those penalties would be then mobilised by a lawyer down the track and uh, certainly used to sort of offset any criminal sanction that a magistrate or a judge might be hand in, handing down. And I, I keep coming back to that because I think that is a really important thing to keep in the equation, to keep in the mix, because victims and alleged victims, I think, would have a view about the appropriateness of this. And I know that people will you know, fall differently on that. I just want to come back to your observation though, Lucy, about risk and the sort of unnecessary or un unacceptable risk that you were talking about that teachers or accountants or people in other professions, even lawyers in some circumstances, are considered to 
oppose to their workplace or their profession if they're allowed to continue practicing or working while allegations uh, make their way through a legal system. And for me, part of the problem here or the question that I, I want to ask is, what is the nature of the risk in the Dugowie or, or any other case involving an alleged offender? What's the nature of the risk? Where does it emerge from? And I think what we saw last week is that at least in part where that risk emerges from or what it is shaped by is the behaviour of the media and the organisation. That's why I think the language that is used by commentators and the need to put in work, as you're both saying, is so critical because they contributed to the risk and contributed to the harm and the distress of people watching at home. And that messaging works counter to public health messages that we see um, organisations like Our Watch putting out if you see disrespectful behaviour, call it out. We get told that that's the messaging and that's the right public health message. And then this massive platform of the football broadcast is telling us something completely other. I mean, the other thing that sprung to mind in the wake of this debate about Dugowie is other cases in the past where players have been stood down or suspended from the game in very different circumstances. And what is, I think, a pretty inconsistent approach by the AFL. And so the case that springs to mind for me, which is a case that I've talked about on this on this show before is I've done a lot of research and work on it is the case of Ben Cousins. Uh, more than a decade ago, I just want to remind people of the timeline, more than a decade ago, Ben Cousins was charged by the AFL with bringing the game into disrepute. He went before the AFL tribunal and he was suspended for the game for a period of 12 months. Now, just to be clear, he had not been charged with any, any criminal offences at that stage. Why he was charged with bringing the game into disrepute and, and why he ultimately was found guilty of bringing the game into disrepute is because he had been using drugs at that stage and he publicly uh, admitted that at a certain point, but he was never charged with a criminal offence at that time. Now, many years later, of course, we know that Cousins subsequently faced drugs drugs charges. He has been convicted. He has also been convicted of other offences, including stalking and breaching intervention orders and so on, very serious matters. But none of that was on the table back then. I want to be very clear about that. And so to me, this really raises a very big question mark in my mind. Why is it that, I don't know, it's 10 years ago and maybe times have changed. Was Why, Gil CEO then? Uh, no, it was Andrew Demetriou. And Andrew Demetriou was pretty publicly outspoken about Ben Cousins. And quite. I actually wrote a paper about, a couple of papers about this. I interviewed Ben Cousins about his experiences with this process. And I also looked at the media coverage and the, John Howard had things to say about it at the time. Andrew Demetriou did. What really troubles me about that case still, and you compare it to somebody like Dugowie or Stephen Milne or others who've been accused of and or subsequently convicted of sexual offences, you know, why was it that Cousins was suspended at that time for bringing the game into disrepute for a whole year, mind you, for using drugs and he went to rehabilitation for it? But we don't see that same response for sexual offences. I do not I do not understand that. I don't necessarily believe that players should be suspended for bringing the game into disrepute, but I would like the AFL to tell us why they pick and choose. As you say, Lucy, get some experts on scene to make sure that their language is right. I'd be really happy for people to say he's back playing after facing these charges. He kicked accurately. We don't need um, all the superlatives, but I don't know. I th- think that could be beyond the broadcaster. Maybe. I think what's really encouraging and what you alluded to before, Em, is that the football watching public has changed, I think, in the way that they talk about these kinds of issues. And I think the expectations are different. And mm-hmm. I feel like that will be heard by broadcasters, by clubs and by the AFL. Because of the COVID rules here in Victoria, we are social distancing with aplomb. 
I am sitting in the studio with Lucy and Kate and Tess is behind double glass and she's not coming anywhere near us. She's got a mask on. But I think we might have... Is Alicia sometimes, are you on the line? I am. I'm sitting on a toy chair right next to a bed in the furthest corner, dark corner of my house. That is some serious social distancing, <laughs> girlfriend. <laughs> How are you? We haven't heard your voice for a little while. How are you going? Oh... I've been on an emotional roller coaster. I'm probably be- faring better though than um, footballers that play 19 days in a row. <laughs> so, but um, I've actually had heart surgery. Can you believe it? It's shocking news <laughs> to hear about your contemporary. To be really honest, and how are you feeling? Has it done the trick? Yes, it's something I was born with. Um, it's not a disease. It's it's where my heart just beats all the time really fast so every time you know a hundred times a day I feel like my first crush was walking into a room and I didn't know what to say that's how I constantly felt so Matthew Matthew McConaughey that is your first <laughs> that's crush that's right <laughs> <Do> they <laughs> call it to long time that's a little in joke for long time <laughs> listeners of the pod they call it three three peditis do they that's right. That's right. So the whole time I feel like I'm, I've got a grand final in front of me. And so they went inside my heart and did something electrical. And now I just feel like the crush walks in and then he walks away. So it goes. But I'm like, oh, you're gone. Well, I'm glad that you got the electrician to have a look during a weekday, not a weekend, because those <laughs> rates right. are crazy. We're so glad that you're on the line for this momentous and exciting um, interview with Julia Gillard. Let's check if we've got Nicole Hayes with us. Nicole, are you there? I am. And goodness me, isn't this fun? We just, just for the listeners, we've all got like, we've got FaceTime going, we've got like apps and phone <laughs> calls, and like, this is so fancy. You guys, we are nailing this technology thing. We're practically NASA. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, we're, three of us are in the studio with Tess through the double glass, but this is probably the last time for a really long time that we will pod like this because COVID rules in Victoria mean that we really should be only going to work if it's essential. And as much as we love you guys, we really want to protect our families and we want to do the right thing and be really socially responsible. So the podcast will be back. We might even podcast 20 days straight or 19 (laughs) days straight, (laughs) but it won't be in this traditional format. We'll be bringing it to you from all of our respective lounge rooms, I expect, which really is taking us back to the good old days, ladies. Do you remember those days? Mm. I do. I do. I remember (laughs) when we used to podcast. Well, we did a couple of podcasts in our car, so I might just go and sit out in my car just for for old time's sake. Who's bringing them in slices? (laughs) (laughs) I will. You know I will. Here in the outer, we cheer and champion women leaders both on and off the footy field. Today we have a guest who knows a lot about leadership because she was the 27th Prime Minister of Australia. She's also the chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and has co-authored a book called Women and Leadership with Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela. We welcome to the outer sanctum, Julia Gillard. Hello, Julia. Hi, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Football and politics are well matched when we look at the numbers of women leaders in each. I'm sure (laughs) that hasn't escaped your attention from time to time. Are women leaders born or are they made? 
I think they're definitely made. One of the things that we talk about in the book is there's a lot of uh, commentary about, you know, men and women's brains and from the moment a baby's born, have they already got gender differences? And we debunk a lot of that as neurosexism rather than neuroscience. So I think children, boys, girls, all have the capacity to be leaders, but their experiences, their environment, their early years, obviously, make a difference and in the book we interviewed eight global women leaders and one thing they all had in common was in their family environment they were never told they couldn't you know they always were told to aim high any life path was open for them that there weren't some things that were just for the boys we loved it's lucy here julia and look we loved your book we loved those series of interviews which are really you know quite intersectional and cover a lot of women from a lot of different countries Countries. You and Ngozi talk about being impatient for change in that book and it's very solutions focused. Can you distill your findings to maybe three key actions that we can all be taking? Yeah, gender discrimination is so complicated, it's hard to boil it down. But if I was going to try and do that, I'd say, number one, I think we all need to recognise, men and women, that we have gender stereotypes whispering in the back of our brains. And the more we talk about them, the more we shine a light on them, the easier it will be to get them out of our heads. So that's an important point. When you're looking at a woman leader and you're concluding, oh, she doesn't seem very likeable or something like that, ask yourself the second question, is that really true or am I really succumbing to some old-fashioned stereotype that a woman who gets to the top is probably a nasty piece of work? Second, I think we shouldn't put additional pressure on women leaders around questions of appearance and family structure. Everybody thinks that they've got the right to comment on what a woman's wearing or whether or not she's had kids. Let's try and stop that. And then three, let's just use our day-to-day power when we're in meetings, when we're going around our usual occupations to try and ensure that women are getting a fair opportunity. If you're sitting in a meeting where basically the men have talked and the women haven't, you can change that. If you see a woman who's the subject of a sexist comment, then you can call that out rather than waiting for her to do it. If you're in an organisation, you can review its structures and practices to make sure that it's fairer for women. Julia, it's Kate here. So as we mentioned at the start, of course, you were Australia's first female Prime Minister and many of our listeners are experiencing being the first or the only at something in their lives. So they might be the first woman who's coaching footy or the first or only Muslim woman at a football club. I wonder if you have any advice for those listeners about uh, dealing with the pressure that comes with being the first or the only It can be a lonely experience being the first, trying to find people to talk to who can really help you deal with the experiences is pretty hard. I mean, one of the delights for me in this book was getting to talk to so many women who have been presidents and prime ministers (laughs) because, you know, it's not like I can wander around Australia and talk to someone about that because it's just me. And I know a lot of women in footy have exactly the same experience. I'd say number one, even if there aren't people who have exactly walked your path, it's still good to have a group of friends, of colleagues that you can decompress with, that you can work through experiences with, and that makes it feel less lonely. 
Second, I think you've got to think a great deal about your sense of self. Anybody who's the first will be subject to a lot of attention, much of it unfortunately negative attention. People will be staring and sometimes they'll be concluding, oh, we knew a woman couldn't do it or we knew some characteristic about that woman was going to get in the way. Prepare for that kind of thing in advance. When I was Prime Minister, I had already, through politics, built up an internal shield. So when the criticism got bad, I already had some coping mechanisms to keep it at a bit of a distance rather than to really let it get in and really wound me. And I think women have to consider all of that and get their thinking right about that before they're subject to attack. Uh, Julia, it's Alicia here, and we love you using footy terms here and to, to talk about the footy ladder. With regards to women in leadership roles in organisations, we hear about the importance of leaving the ladder down for the next crop of women to come up after. Who left the ladder down for you and um, why was that support crucial? Lots of women left the ladder down for me and I would particularly point to Joan Kerner, the first woman to serve as Premier of Victoria. She was a great mentor and friend of mine, but even more significantly than that, she and a range of other Labor women, women like Kay Setchers, who served as a minister in Joan's government, uh, and a series of others, Candy Broad, Carolyn Hogg. Once Joan had left being Premier, they all came together to do two incredibly important things. They fought for the Labor Party Affirmative Action Rule, which has ensured that more women have gone into Parliament to represent Labor. And second, they created a Labor women's organisation called Emily's List, the whole purpose of which is to support Labor women candidates. And both of those things coming together have helped us as a political party get to a stage where almost half-half men and women the Labor team in the National Parliament. So that was really uh, making sure that the ladder was there for the others that were coming through. One thing that we've discovered here, Julia, is that podcasting gives a power to elevate voices that have previously not had a platform. And you, of course, have a podcast of one's own. How do you see technology influencing the push for gender equality and media diversity? I think it's got good sides and bad sides. I think um, podcasting, the diversification of the media where you don't have to be some global, international, billionaire media mogul to create a platform that people can listen to, I think that that's helped bring women's voices more and more to the fore. And the fact that, you know, you can have this focusing on footy and get it out there, that's all because of the technology that we have today. And yet, it does have a downside to social media has become a place where sexism and misogyny just gets too much exposure and you would know, the players would know, women coaches, women involved in footy, that almost every time they look down at their Twitter feed, there will be something revolting on it. And I spend a lot of time asking myself, 
what is unfortunately an unanswerable question, was all that sexism and misogyny always there and we didn't know it because people mm. didn't have this anonymous real-time engagement to get it out or has something about the technology driven an outburst of that sort of, you know, excluding, hateful approach to women? I don't know the answer, but I certainly know that women in politics, women in public life, face a lot of it and it's something that we have to try and put pressure on the big media companies, the Facebooks and Twitters and the like to change the way those platforms work so that it's not a constant feature for women in public life. Julia, it's Nicole here. On that, that, I mean that's been a big part of our conversation recently, the power of social media to be both vehicle and weapon. We're seeing it play out. You know, there have been times in history where you've got significant moments of change, your misogyny speech overlapping with the Me Too movement and and currently with the Black Lives Matter. How do we sustain and maintain the momentum when these, you know, we seem to move on to things so quickly? I think that is difficult. We live in a very crowded, contested world, don't we, where things, you know, seem to come and go almost in the blink of an eye. And there's just so much to think about. I mean, I just look back across 2020 and I had an international visitor come and see me in January when the bushfires were raging around the country and that was taking all of our attention. And that now seems just years ago because of how much uh, attention Attention, time, worry and anxiety the COVID pandemic has taken. So in a world like that, sustaining activism can seem like a big challenge. I think from the individual point of view, you know, you you can look at your life in segments and you can say to yourself, I'm going to be all in for a period of time and then I will need a period of rest and recuperation and maybe retreat. That is perfectly acceptable and people shouldn't think just because they've needed to retreat from a while that they can't come back to um, a more active phase of their life. We all have stages that we need to go through. And from the point of view of movements, unfortunately, I think we've got to show some strategic patience. You know, the history of feminism is always described in waves. And I think that's a good way to describe it because waves have backwash. You know, you go forward and then something comes and pushes you back a bit and then you need to surge forward again. So don't get profoundly disillusioned by those times of backwash. We'll still get to take some additional steps forward. That's a beautiful metaphor, Julia. You talked earlier about women's voices and elevating women's voices and I want to ask you a question literally about women's voices and the way we sound because women are scrutinised a lot in public life, as as you know, almost more than anybody and in footy too, they're also scrutinised heavily, including about the way that they sound. And this can make it really difficult for women to break into footy commentary, to sports panels, and even to podcasts, as we've experienced. And you experienced a lot of that criticism in the past about your own voice and the sound of your voice. And I wonder if you can tell us about what that was like for you and how we can support women facing barriers around that, given that the voice is so central to communication. (laughs) Um, That's a very good question. And 
I didn't realise I had some weirdo voice until, <laughs> I, was, until I was at the forefront of politics. And uh, my sister and people who know me well were always shaking their head in wonderment, like, what is this thing about her voice? She's always <laughs> sounded like that. We've never thought it was unusual. It just goes to show how familiarisation with a voice makes a real difference. You know, my sister and I, we grew up in a migrant family and we thought our mother and father just talked like everybody else. But when we had kids visit, you know, when we were school kids and you'd have your little mates around, they'd sort of look at us because they wouldn't understand our mum and dad when they were talking because of their Welsh accents. And my sister and I didn't even hear the accents because we were so used to our parents' voice. And I think all of this is true about authority and voices. It's not innate. It's just that over generations, we've been kind of trained to think that the voice of authority is the male voice. It's the newsreader who's bringing us whatever are the headlines of the day. It's the male politician stepping out at a press conference in his suit with his deep voice. Now people are being asked to recognise that authority comes, you know, knowledge comes, experience comes, skill comes with people of all shapes and sizes and genders and with all kinds of voices, but we still haven't managed to um, open up our listening and receive every voice as potentially authoritative. Just recognising that, that it's not innate, that it's trained in us and we can train ourselves another way, I think is a big part of the solution. Julia, there was and there continues to be criticism that we didn't see marriage equality passed by your government. And I wonder if you have some regrets about that and what advice you would give to leaders regarding striking that balance between ideals and pragmatism. I'm very glad that Australia has marriage equality now and I was very happy to vote yes in the plebiscite when it happened and I know how significant that was to people as an indication that we were at a stage as a nation where people were going to be loved and accepted for who they are. So I've never underestimated the meaning of that to uh, people, to men and to women, uh, to gay couples, to their families. So it is important. Um, Back when I was in politics, um, one, I had a kind of view about a broader conversation that we might be able to have about the significance of marriage, but human history's marched on and I'm glad that we're in this era of marriage equality. Second, just from a sort of numbers counting point of view, as a minority government in the days in which we governed, which as you would recall were highly partisan, um, with a very strident opposition, uh, I don't believe that we would have been able to get marriage equality through. I think it would have been a very um, ugly and partisan debate and that's the last thing that you want when you're trying to bring a reform like marriage equality. So, you look, reasonable people can differ on views of history and I accept that. And in politics, you know, there's often no completely right answer. It's all a question of judgment, but that's my judgment. On terms of pragmatism and idealism, you know, I've always been someone who's um, had a strong set of values and wanted to put them into action. You know, things I've believed in all of my life. 
particularly around education and opportunity and making sure that the poorest children get a great chance in life. But I've always been too in the can-do business and sometimes you can do more than in other eras. And I am pragmatic enough to say that, you know, you've got to maximise reform at each stage. You mightn't get everything and then you come back for a second stage and a third stage and a fourth stage and you keep building. And when I look back on the history of my government, there are some things that we just wholly did that will be there for the long term, like the National Disability Insurance Scheme. There are some things we got to lay the foundation stones for, like fairer funding of schools, carbon pricing, and it will take future generations of politicians to build on those foundations. Julia, political leadership worldwide is troubling at the moment, especially with the rise of populism and especially with COVID. Some of the best countries that are handling it well have women in leadership. I'm just wondering what are some of the best qualities for leadership that you think would would help a country at the moment? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've been through this political era in the lead up to COVID where it's almost been an era where facts don't matter and expertise doesn't matter. And so, you know, we've watched truly odd things happen. Do you remember that weird debate about how many people went to President Trump's inauguration where he's just claiming until he's blue in the face, it's the biggest crowd in human history. There's never been more people go to an inauguration. And then people have got the photographs and they can compare them with photographs of past inaugurations and just say... Ah uh, no, there are less people here. Um, but but even in the face of a solid, documented fact like that, he never gave up. He just, you know, kept saying it was the biggest inauguration that there's ever been. I don't know, but we all just seem to. I don't know whether we wearied of it or we just rolled with it, but those things just seem to happen and happen and happen. The facts mattered less and less and expertise seemed to matter less and less. So we would have climate scientists around the world saying, look, you know, this is an emergency. We've got to do something about carbon pollution. And people saying, oh, you know, I reckon I know better than that climate scientist and the weather's not really changing, so I'm not going to vote for any change. And one of the things I'm hopeful about in this pandemic era is that both of those things have now met their match because a virus doesn't listen to your bluster and a virus has to be analysed by science and expertise. And so the leaders who are doing well now are the people who recognise facts, who respect expertise, who accept advice and then lead with strength and empathy. And if we come out of this era saying that's the kind of leadership we want, I think we'll be headed for a better future. And I actually think we'll see more women come through for leadership when people value that combination of strength and empathy. One of your many roles is as the chair of Beyond Blue and we are having a lot more conversations about mental health as a community and football is playing a really key part in that conversation. What is the most important message that you would like to get out to listeners about? Yeah, we do have a fantastic partnership with the AFL and also with the NRL with the playing of the Beyond Blue Cup and we always 
does have the tagline when those matches are held that uh, talking about mental health is a game changer. One thing I'm pleased about in this time is that every step of the way as Australia's faced the pandemic, we've talked about mental health every, every week, every day, alongside talking about physical health and how to keep yourself um, safe from the virus. And I do really think that if the nation had faced a pandemic 10, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had the level of dialogue about mental health. So I think the message is getting through that it's fine to talk about your own mental health. Where that message still needs to make a bit more of a breakthrough is with young men, uh, which is why, you know, the footy, your AFL, NRL, other sporting contests is a great way to get that message out. Of course, you know, you're a podcast, we're all women who love our footy, uh, but we do know that it's young men who are quite likely to have in their minds still that image that, you know, being a man is about being strong and silent and not complaining about your problems. And so if a sporting code that they truly love is urging them to talk about their own mental health, then that's more likely to resonate with them than trying to get the message through in other ways. Nicole? Julia, it's so important to look at that, you know, leadership from men as well as from women. How do we measure success in leadership like it's a very qualitative concept numbers are one part of it but true influence and impact is harder to measure when will we know if we're winning yeah i think we first need to look at the numbers and i know that they're not everything but unless we have effectively half men and half women coming through for leadership so you know whether you call that um the, the position of Prime Minister or a CEO of a business or who leads the AFL or who's captain of the team or whether you look at that as a much more localised uh, phenomenon, you know, who's running the local shop that people work in, who's running the local school, who's leading the local uh, community sporting endeavours. Whatever level of leadership you're looking at, I think the numbers do matter because unless we're seeing half men, half women, if you believe as I do, merits equally distributed between the sexes, if we're not seeing half-half, then that must mean that there are people of merit who could have come through, should have come through, but some artificial barrier is stopping them. So the numbers matter. Now, does that mean if we lived in a world where across a 50-year period, the number of uh, prime ministers was exactly half men and half women, that every one of them would be a great leader? I think the answer is no. You know, some of them would better succeed as prime minister. Some of them would make errors. Um, like most leaders in Australian history, they would have had their good points and their bad points, and uh, people would view their leadership uh, differently depending on their own partisan predilections. Um, it, so I'm not sure we can benchmark and say, we'll know we've hit equality when we've only got good leaders. I think we'll know we've hit equality when we're seeing equal numbers of men and women leading and when we're judging their leadership fairly and not through the prism of gender. Julia, in what ways has your feminism evolved over the years? Yeah, I talk about this in the book. I mean, I've always been a feminist. I always would have used that word to describe myself. And, you know, even as a 
kid in school, I had an intuitive sense that boys and girls were equal. Uh, by the time I went to university, I got to learn about feminism. I mean, I never took a formal course of gender studies or anything like that. I mean, when I was in university, I doubt you could have taken a formal <laughs> course of gender studies. Uh, that's all a more recent phenomenon. Um, but I got involved in the student movement and there was an active and lively discussion about feminism. And there were sort of two contending schools. There were women who wanted to take their feminism into mainstream organisations and make them better for women. And there were women who wanted to organise and be in women's only spaces. And I was always in the, the first camp. I wanted to take my feminism into organisations like the student union and make sure that they were delivering for women. And that stayed with me across my political life. Of course, I've been quintessentially in the mainstream. I've been in parliament. I've been in government. And and for me, I think that was the right choice. But coming out of all of that experience, I do look back now and think maybe because I had this very can-do outlook, I missed out on some of the more emotional things about feminism, some of the delightful things that happen when women get to spend time together just working and talking with each other. And in this phase of my life, I'm very much enjoying the opportunity to do that. Julia, I'm just so uh, excited that you do have such a love of footy. And I just would love you to set the scene for us when you're at the footy and you're letting go. I just want to picture it. What does it look like? Oh, look, I'm not a huge shouter screamer uh, you know I've obviously got this voice but people don't hear it bellowed across <laughs> uh, I, I think if I did bellow across quite a few heads would turn but I'm someone who does enjoy those you know delicious and sometimes hugely anxiety-causing moments of tension. I do sometimes have my fingers over one eye and I'm kind of peeking through them because I, I want to watch, but I almost can't bear to watch whether or not they're going to score that goal. It's that sense of that frisson of um, anxiety, tension and being so in the moment with it that I really like. Which was more thrilling for you, becoming the first female Prime Minister or the Doggies Premiership in 2016? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look, if I was uh, honest, I'd have to say becoming the first female Prime Minister. Um, I, I do hope uh, that both uh, the swearing-in of female Prime Ministers and doggy premierships become routine. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you did also win a, an AFLW Premiership for the Western Bulldogs. Not you personally, but the Bulldogs <laughs> did. The AFLW, has it achieved things in gender equality that politics and policy can't? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, because sexism is so multifaceted that... From the power position of a government, you're going to be able to change some things, but most assuredly not everything. And you can provide one sort of role model, but not all sorts of role models. And what, you know, women's footy can do is provide such a different set of role models. So for, you know, women and girls to see themselves as um, strong 
profoundly physically capable, um, able to uh, show that athleticism and spirit and to have, you know, people watching it, cheering for it. Um, all of that, I think, sends an amazing message uh, to, to young girls and government would never be able to do that. Julia, one of the things we've talked about a lot on this podcast over the years is this perennial debate about whether politics has a role in sport. I wonder what your view is on that. Oh, look, I think there's, um, you know, there's formal touching points, of course, you know, the, uh, there's various uh, regulatory settings from government and funding and stuff like that that makes a difference and can make a very big difference, particularly at the community level. Beyond that, I wouldn't use the word politics uh, because often when you use the word politics, people think, you know, capital P Labor Party, Liberal Party. It's actually something beyond that. It's values. I think the values intersection uh, with sport is incredibly important and sport can role model exclusive values. It can reinforce, you know, the only people who get to thrive and achieve in our society is a very small exclusive club that looks like this. Or it can role model inclusive values that you can come from um, any community, any family, any gender, any race, any religion, and you can be, you know, lauded as a giant of the game. And that kind of inclusion really matters and speaks beyond the sporting arena. If people see it in the sporting arena, then I think they take it with them. Julia, we've been uh, offering to our listeners a segment we like to call the fifth quarter where we bring things that we're watching, listening to, reading. And we were wondering if you would join us for the fifth quarter and, and share with us what you've been reading, watching or listening to, what's been getting your, the attention of the, the culture side of your brain in the last couple of weeks. Sure. Well, um, I've potentially set myself a goal I may never achieve, but um, I've set myself a medium-term goal of reading the collected works of Virginia Woolf, uh, noted uh, feminist and writer. When I'm in London, if I ever get back to London, I'm sure I will one day, I work uh, with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership out of the Virginia Woolf building, and of course I've named my podcast a podcast of one's own after her wonderful statement about a room of one's own in which to write. So I'm um, on a mission to do that. That's going to take me some time. But in between, you've got to go from, you know, one book to another. I can't just straightforward read my way through all of Virginia Woolf. So having finished one Virginia Woolf, I'm now reading uh, Girl, Woman, Other. Yeah, yep. which um, is fantastic. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I don't have a series that I'm binging at the moment, but I'm watching a few things. I've always been a horror movie genre person. Uh, so the most recent movie I watched was uh, Relic, um, which is a horror story set in country Victoria. It's got some, you know, oh, jump moments. <laughs> I'm shocked by that. I would never have pegged you for a horror fan. It's a Gillard family thing. <laughs> We watch horror, gore. Honestly, I could go on Mastermind if they still have Mastermind. And my special area of expertise could be zombie and vampire films. Undoubtedly. Wow. Hard quiz, maybe. Yeah, hard, hard quiz. Uh, my special area of expertise could be The Walking Dead. Wow. <laughs> 
I've always wanted to ask you this. We've loved the scene of Hugh Grant as the British PM dancing to the Pointer <laughs> Sisters through Downing Street. Did you ever pump up the Pointer Sisters and have a little dance through the lodge? Uh, no, I didn't, but I have a wonderful British friend who does a remarkable impersonation <laughs> of Hugh Grant, including the uh, the hip swivelling and the finger pointing, um, and occasionally in London uh, we'll prevail upon him to do it. Is that friend Tony Blair? <laughs> I do see Tony Blair when I'm in London, but no, I've never asked him. I could, uh, if you like. Um, uh, next time I see Tony Blair, I'll say, look, there's a group of women with a very noted podcast in Australia who really want me to be able to report that I've seen you do the Hugh Grant dance. But no, it's not him. <laughs> okay, so we just found out that Julia is mad for zombie films. That it was shocking news, but there was so much in that book and we wanted to try and get to so many different points about leadership. We hope that you've enjoyed that conversation. That was quite a way to spend a morning, ladies. Thank you, Nick and Alicia, for being down the Line. Thanks, Thanks for up. having us. That was so fun. Well, it's not having you. You're all, you this is your pod- <laughs> This is a podcast of your own as well. <laughs> it is. But um, very impressive for you to be able to hold a conversation with the former PM sitting on a kid's chair in the front of your house there, Alita. <laughs> <laughs> the things we do for the love of sport. Well, I think there is only one thing left to say, ladies, and that is... Go, 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 go Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.